Father, we are mindful that so many Christians across the world are undergoing intense persecution. We read of, um, we, we read of just horrific things of uh, groups like ISIS that are capturing young Christian girls and selling them into sexual slavery, of uh, women and girls being raped, of men being literally uh, not only beheaded but crucified who refuse to recant and refuse to deny the Lord Jesus, refuse to convert under duress. We know of pastors that are in prison um, in our, our Iran, in uh, other countries, in North Korea, uh, where Christians are in labor camps and slaving their lives away. We, we, uh, we are immune to these things. We're, we're sensing in our country that there has been a turn against Christianity. It's very obvious, it's very clear. And uh, the heat is being turned up, but nothing, nothing compared to what hundreds of thousands and millions of Christian people are experiencing around the world. So, we would pray for them. We would pray. Uh, and Lord, there, there, there are masses of people. But those masses of people break down into families and churches have been burned. Pastors have been killed. Um, those are individuals. Those are, those are men like us with wives like our wives and children like ours and little grandchildren like ours. So we take a moment and we pray for those folks and we pray that they will discover in the midst of their loss, in the midst of their pain, the reality of the living Christ. And we admire their, we admire their courage. They, they remind me of the, the three young men who were faced with the fiery furnace who said, King, we don't need to give you an answer to this. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, we will not bow. These people have our highest admiration. And we pray, Lord, that you would... <laughs> it's overwhelming to us, but... Lord, this is not overwhelming to you, and you, you at times work so strangely in history. You have used persecution. When we read the history of the church, persecution is used by you to further the gospel. And it, it's so strange, and it's so foreign to us. But, Lord, you know every one of those individuals. You know their hearts cry. You know their needs. You know, you know all things. We commit them into your hands. We thank you that there will be grace and mercy for them even in their loss each day as it is there for us. And then, Lord, even in praying for these folks, it casts new light on what we're dealing with and our issues as we walk in here tonight. We've all got our stuff. We've all got our 
our difficulties. We all have our afflictions. We all have our duresses. But, Lord, in light of that, it, it, it puts a whole new twist on our view of what we're going through. We have been, we have been greatly blessed. We have received much mercy. So help us not to complain. Help us not to grumble. Help us to be teachable. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be mindful of all that you have poured upon us, not only forgiveness of sin, but provision and care and comfort. We do not want to despise those things. We want to be grateful for those things which come from your fatherly hand. Now again tonight, as we open your word, we ask that you would, you would teach us. We ask that you would, um, the areas that we all have where we are somewhat defensive, uh, places we don't want to go there. Well, you want to go there. We uh, need your word, Lord. You, you've given it to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We need all those things. Uh, sometimes when we're taught, we're reproved because we're off, we're off base. When you reprove us, you're not, you don't just leave us there, but you want to correct us and get us back to where we should be so that we can grow up and be mature. Do that process in our lives tonight. Help us, Lord, as we study this, this whole issue of humility. It, it's hard to get our arms around it, but we need to. Would you assist us? Would you help us? Would you give us clarity? And this would be our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage is in Philippians chapter 2, and I want to pick up with verse 3. We, we were in this passage last week. We called it getting a grip on uh, humility. But uh, in all actuality, when I walked out of here, I felt like I didn't get a grip on it the way I wanted to. Um, I had some frustration. Um, was able to touch on some things, but not able to really delve into them, and that inevitably leads to questions. And we did a short question and answer after uh, the teaching last week, and there were a couple of questions that were uh, posited to me that were excellent questions, which let me know we needed some more, um, we needed to dig in a little bit more. So we're doing round two here tonight on humility, but the passage reads, in Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes to the church at Philippi. He says, do nothing from selfishness, or some translations say selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So when we talk about humility, Christ is the model. We're always looking to Christ. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Okay? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
when it says he existed in the form of God, it, the idea is here. And, you know, it's, it's easy to read this passage when you get into some of these things about Jesus. He existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. You can get, is there theology there? Yeah. But it's consistent with other passages in Scripture. Uh, when, he, when he existed in the form of God, what it really means is he's completely and totally God. He existed. Uh, in the, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There, there's a graph, and I'm interrupting the text, but they're, they're on, on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, you, can, you can draw a, a small circle and put in there God. Uh, then you put a, uh, a spoke up a little ways and put Father, and then another spoke and write Son, and then write put another spoke and put Holy Spirit. So you got a, a hub, and then you got a spoke, and then you got three other circles, all right? So God in the middle. Um, you can write in that spoke God, that spoke going up to Father, you can write the word is. The Father is God, okay? The spoke that says Jesus Christ, the Son, you can write the word is on the spoke. Jesus Christ is God, okay? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God, okay? But connecting the Father to the Son, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. You got that? You understand it totally and completely? Good. All right, let's move on. Trinity, um, I, I saw something today, uh, a great theologian named Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Someone... Uh, did a summary of his writings on the Trinity, and it was, uh, it was a PDF you could download. It was 20 pages just on the Scripture references. Just on the Scripture references. We're, we're, so are, are we going to break this down to that degree? No. Let's just say this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. Um, he emptied himself, the text goes on and says. Well, well, did he empty himself of being God? No, it's not saying that. Uh, what it means is he laid aside his privileges. Turn over, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. Um, I think we want to go to 2 Corinthians 8. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8 9 is looking at this from a different angle, but it really captures what Paul is saying in Philippians, all right? Um, 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was God. He existed as God. He spoke the worlds into existence. He's God. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Well, how did he become poor? When he laid aside the privileges that he had as God and became the God-man. 
when he was born of a virgin, the God-man. That's astonishing. Why was he going to become the God-man? Because the whole world was in sin, locked up in sin. There was no way to rescue them because of the justice of God. The wrath of God against sin had to be, um, it, it, it had to be paid. And the problem is there was no one who could pay it because everyone was tainted by sin. Everyone. The only one not tainted by sin, Jesus. So he became the God-man. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Uh, when he showed up and John the Baptist was baptizing, and it just occurred to me, I'm still reading Philippians chapter 2, although we're taking a, this is called a parenthesis, because we've got to clarify this. When he showed up and John was baptizing, John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, they were always sacrificing lambs. How many lambs had been sacrificed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? It was the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. And you read Leviticus, and you read those Old Testament laws, and it's very exact the kind of animal. You couldn't take a lame animal. You couldn't take a, uh, a defiled animal. You couldn't take a, a, an animal that had any defect. Uh, it was representing the coming, the coming Lord. So John says, when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why there are no more sacrifices. Jesus, once for all, with his life, with his sinless life, Jesus paid it all. You getting this? Sure you are. Okay, so let's go back to Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges. When it says emptied himself, it doesn't mean he ceased to be God. It's not saying that at all. It's not what's meant not what's intended. He just laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant. He became a man and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Staggering. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He died in our place. 1 Corinthians 15 <clears throat> for I delivered to you, and, and, and we have to get this, for I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing in all of the world. I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Your sin, my sin, Jesus died in our place. He took your sin. He took my sin. He took it upon him. He had no sin. He took my sin, your sin, the sins of the whole world. He took it upon him. 1 Corinthians 15, as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, that he appeared to 12, that he appeared to over 500 at one time. He only died for our sin, was buried, but he rose from the grave. He appeared to over 500 at one time. None of them ever recanted and said, I was just kidding, I just made it up. If you'll plea bargain my way out of this death. Nobody did that. They saw him. Because they saw him, they weren't afraid to die because they knew if they died, they'd go to be with him. 
This is the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. It sets us free. Okay. So that's the gospel. Verse 8, being found, I'm back at Philippians 2, 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every name will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, if, you, if you bend your knee now, Um, and confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you do that now, it's the sheer grace of God that he has pulled you, that he has drawn you. No man can come unless the Father draws him. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come. You're here because you've heard the gospel, you've responded Lord Jesus, come into my life. You've asked him to be your savior. We, uh, we, he's our God, he's our shepherd, he's our Lord. We, we bow, we bend the knee. If you do that now, it's sheer grace. Everyone who has ever existed on the face of the earth will do it in the future. Everyone. That's coming. If you do it now, it's the sheer grace of God. Some are going to do it, and it's going to be too late. But the whole world will acknowledge who he is. Okay. All right, now, let's back up. Because that's who Jesus, that's who Jesus is, and we get a description of who he is and what he has done, but let's not forget the admonition that's at the beginning of the text in Philippians, what is it, 2, 3? To us, okay? Now, we believe that truth. We thank God for that truth. We thank God for the gospel. We thank God for what Jesus has done, okay? But there's more to it than that. He writes to us, and he says in 2, 3 of Philippians, to us, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition and empty conceit, but with, humility of, uh, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So the attitude which we saw in Christ, this attitude of humility, this attitude, and you see, when you talk about humility, really what humility is and there are different aspects to humility. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a diamond that has been cut. When um, I, you, you, when, when you, uh, you know, met your wife and started dating, and at a certain point, you, I want to marry this girl. And so at some point, you walked into a jewelry store, as I did, and you're going to buy her a ring. And... Uh, I know you think you got a good deal, but I'm telling you, they took you. <laughs> and they took me, because we're like sheep to the slaughter walking in there. We, we, we don't know what we're doing. We have no context. Uh, there was no internet back then. You had nothing to compare. 
I mean, you're just walking in. They're going to shear you like you can't believe. And, and first of all, you're intimidated because you're in it. Okay, so you walk in, and at a certain point, you're looking around. And then I remember they put me in this little room, and the, it had black velvet and the lights, and they're showing you the cut, and the, oh, they're telling you all this stuff. You're not getting it. But one thing they'd do is they'd move that diamond around, and you could see the light would hit it, and you could see the, you could see the cut and how they did it. You know, it's kind of impressive. That's kind of the way humility is. You look at it, there are different sides to it. But in its essence, so, you know, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to be humble. Well, what does that mean? I mean, what does that look like? Uh, I, I think the, I, I think humility is misunderstood. I think we are puzzled by humility. I think it's not clear to us. Um, so tonight, I want to take another pass at this and try to break some of this stuff down. What biblical humility is and what it isn't. Because we have these distorted understandings, and, um, you know, Christians can get weird. And, and some who teach the Bible teach weird things about humility. And some people who really look godly aren't godly at all. They're just weird. And in some circles, and if you grew up in some, you know, in a lot of Bible teaching churches, the weirdest people are concerned, in, in some circles, are, if you're weird, you're spiritual. Now, I could tell you stories, and I'm not going to. I will tell you this. <laughs> to this day, to this day, if I see someone dressed in a certain way and a woman with a certain hairstyle, I can tell you, I can tell you that she's a Christian, and I can tell you what genre of Christianity she fits into, okay? I'll tell you right now, she's not a Calvinist. She comes out of what would be called the Arminian Wesleyan holiness tradition. And, you know, I'm not trying to, that's where she comes from. Because she's dressed a certain way and she looks a certain way. I remember getting off a plane in San Antonio and suddenly I'm surrounded by people who look like this. Well, I went to churches where those people proliferated. That's how I was raised. My grandma looked like that. My grandma would not allow my dad to drink, to drink root beer. <laughs> because it was root beer. And we're called unto holiness. Dadgummit. And she'd be upset that I said dadgummit. But she loved the Lord. But this was her little world. It was weird. And if you're, raised in a, if you're raised in that, it takes you a while to separate the weirdness from Jesus. It takes you a while to separate the weirdness from biblical Christianity. But I'm surrounded at baggage claim by these people that all were dressed like that. And one of the gentlemen were waiting, and I just, you know, we started. I said, so are you in town? And he goes, oh, yeah, we're in town. What are you in town for? Well, our church was having its annual convention. I said, what church is that? He told me, he went, yep. <laughs> Hope it goes well. Good people, love the Lord. Okay? We can get weird on stuff. We get weird on biblical humility. Um, so let's start with what the text says, and then let's look at some of the aberrations. Uh, 
Here's humility. Do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's the essence of humility. Not looking out just, and it goes on and says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This kind of fits. Uh, what, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, all your might. And the second is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as your, what? Self. And the whole law is contained in those two commandments. Well, that's what you've got right here. You see, Christ has come into our lives. So we love him. We're learning to love him with all our hearts. Deuteronomy 6, we're learning that process. But it just doesn't start there. It's just not loving God. It's loving other people. It's right in the text. Humility of mind, regard one another. Because, see, we don't start off with humility of mind. We start off with, pri uh, with, with pride in our hearts. We start off as narcissists. We are self-centered. We are selfish. That's how we start off. Uh, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's it. That's humility. Which is what Jesus did. Jesus did not look out just for his own interests. No, he could have done that. He could have stayed in heaven, but he didn't do that. Jesus didn't look out just for his own interests. He looked out for our interests. He came and he died in our place. He loved us before, before we ever loved him. Jesus is the model of humility. The gospel is all about the humility of Christ. He gave preference to us rather than preferring himself. That's the essence of humility. Um, I wrote some things down so I wouldn't forget them. Um, so what is healthy biblical humility and what isn't? Uh, inherent in the idea of humility is that we are actually to love ourselves. Uh, now, we really are. We are to love ourselves. We are to take care of ourselves. If we are to love others as we love ourselves. Uh, you, you see, don't merely look out for your own personal interest. It assumes we'll look out for our own personal interest. But when Christ comes into my life, he's going to shift. Because, see, uh, years ago, 30 years ago, there was the big book out there, uh, Looking Out for Number One. That was a big book. That was a huge book. Looking Out for Number One. See, that's precisely the antithesis of biblical humility. We're all looking out for number one. But when Christ comes into our lives, he, want, he transforms us, he redeems us. Now he wants us to go from looking out for number one to looking out for others. Looking out for your wife. Looking out for your kids. Looking out for your employees. Looking out for those in need around you. Looking out for the, for the lady on your street uh, whose husband passed away and she's by herself. And, you know, her fence needs to be restained or something. All right, that's biblical Christianity. Just go over there and I'll take care of that for you, man. No, you know, we'll cut your yard. That's biblical Christianity. That's biblical humility. That's practical Christianity. It doesn't mean that you don't look out for your own needs. Some people take this too far. Oh, I'm a worm. You're not a worm. You're made in the image of God. Oh, I'm nothing. Some people are doormats who are Christians. God never said to be a doormat. Well, I'm told to be meek. Well, yeah, you're told to be meek, but being meek is not being a doormat. Uh, not in any way. It takes tremendous strength to be meek. 
You see, all right, let, let's stay with humility. Inherent in the idea of humility is that actually we are to love ourselves, take care of ourselves. If we are to love others as we love ourselves. So humility is not saying I am nothing, I do nothing. It is not an unbalanced overcaring to such a degree that other people control you rather than the Lord, you see. And some of us, were easily controlled by other people. No, we're not to be controlled by other people. We're to be controlled by the Lord and by his word. Uh, it is seeing yourself from God's perspective and serving others out of the richness of walking with him. That's biblical humility. A person who ignores himself completely, quite frankly, hasn't the wisdom or the wherewithal to love and serve other people well. Because you cannot let your well run dry. You see, if you never... So are we to look out for other people? Yes, but you're also to look out for your needs. Because if... <laughs> you know it's possible, and some of us have done this... Um, you can let your well run dry. You can get so active doing good things. You can get so active, uh, you, you know, uh, and I'll get into this in a minute about business and ambition and all that. You, you can get so active doing good things. You can get so active in, in church ministry and church work. You can get so active in in uh, helping others that you're just continually giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. But you see, what happens is, if you're just giving and giving and giving and giving, was Jesus always giving? He was giving and giving and giving and giving, and they would come to him, and he would heal all who would come to him, and he was absolutely exhausted. But he never let his well run dry. Because you read all the times in the Scripture, he would go off by himself, wouldn't he? And what would he do? He would pray, and he would interact with the Father. Because, you see, he could not let that, when, when we give, when, when you're dispensing from the well, then what you've got to do is, you, that, that well, the, the level's got to come back up. You see, and we can, at times, even in ministry, even caring about people, and um, if you care about people and you're in ministry, you, you could spend every waking hour with people in ministry because the needs never go away. Uh, at your, with your life and your sphere of responsibilities, you've got your job. You've got people in your sphere with, for whom you are responsible. So you've got your work. You have your family. You have your wife. You have your kids. You have, your, you have friends, maybe a friends in crisis, okay? You want to be there for them. Uh, all these different things. But <laughs> you can't ignore your own needs. You have to be filling your own well. Because if you don't, you will burn out. I, I had a couple of times early on when I just flat out burned out. Because as a young guy, I would go, I was insane. I was a young pastor. I was trying to build a church in the Bible Belt of, uh, well, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, really fertile soil up there. It's amazing. Um, but I was driven. I was driven. I could not shut it off. I could not turn it off. I, want, I just wanted to build this church up, and I wanted, you know. And I, I mean, I was, I, was, I was crazy. I remember Mary one night, she said, Steve, do you think maybe sometime this week we could just go out, the two of us, and go see a movie? 
I really didn't want to do it. Uh, well, I have a responsibility to do that. I, I was forgetting all, all about my wife. And then, see, a few years later, I went into a deep depression. And I couldn't figure out why I went into such a deep depression. Well, I'm telling you, my well went dry because I was running on fumes, and I just kept running and running and saying all the Christian things, but there was no reality in my own life because I wasn't cultivating my inner life. I had forgotten that apart from me, you can do nothing. I thought apart from him, I could do anything, but I can't. So I have to make time for me. I have to have time where I'm alone with the Lord. I ha you, you have to, for me, I, I, I have to, it kind of works out for me. I, I've told you before, I learned this from my dad. My dad would get up before anyone else, and he would have his time in the Word. It's quiet. There's no, you know, so I can hear from the Lord, so I can feed my well. And as I read the Word, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Then the Lord, if I'm a little bit out of line, you know, he can, he, can, he can get me, and I'm listening. And am I making any sense? But if I neglect myself, how can I love anybody else? How can I love my wife? I can't. You're going to wind up in a ditch. Okay. The, uh, let's talk about temperaments. A few weeks ago, one of the guys mentioned he was starting to read Martin Lloyd-Jones' great book called Spiritual Depression. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor of Westminster Chapel of London, who died in 81, was a medical doctor before he was a pastor. Uh, he was shaving one morning, and this outline came to him. And he had soap on his face. He just he grabbed a pen and paper started writing. The different ways that the enemy depresses Christians. And uh, then he preached it and became a book. One of the things Lloyd-Jones talks about are temperaments. We have different temperaments. You're born with a temperament. Your kids are born with a temperament. And different temperaments, you know, this humility thing affects temperaments in different ways. Uh, so some by temperament are pleasers. Okay? So if you're a pleaser, let's take humility. If you're a pleaser... Uh, you are an overconcerned, enabling person, perhaps, who thinks they have true humility when their sacrifices are actually driven by the need to please others. Uh, we have to be careful. And one of the things Lloyd-Jones says is that one of the first things that's important in the Christian life is to know yourself. How has God wired me? How am I put together? And you say, well, I'm really not sure. Well, ask some folks who really know you well. I had a guy ask me last week at a conference. He said, you know, Steve, I'm 60 years old. I really have no idea what my gifts are. And I said, well, you know, that's understandable. I mean, sometimes it's hard for us to kind of self-diagnose. But what I might suggest to you is to ask, uh, if you're married, your wife, or two or three Christian friends, ask them what they think your gifts are. They're probably going to give you, you're probably going to hear the same thing from them. They're going to give you an accurate appraisal. If you can't see it yourself, others can see it. You see, if you're a pleaser, uh, here's the thing about pleasing people. You can never do it. If you please, if you please this guy, it's going to tick this guy off over here. So you see in 
Flip over to 2 Corinthians 5. I actually wrote it on my hand so I wouldn't forget it. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We make it our ambition, Paul says. He says, therefore, we have also as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. See, the one I want to please is the Lord. Um, and maybe this pleasing thing doesn't really connect with you at all. That's because you have a different temperament. Maybe you're the, uh, the overconfident, perhaps even uh, controlling personality, the high D, the dominant guy. You're going you're gonna to walk in with your agenda, and you're going to take care of things, and you're going to get it done. You, you, some guys see their gifts and, and their abilities as... Uh, they're a gift to the world. And here's what I've accomplished. And here's what I've done. And uh, they're not ashamed to tell you. Um, well, that certainly isn't biblical humility. That's, uh, that's self-promotion. That's self-importance. Um, you have other Christians who are more uh, unsure they are self-doubting. They're always second-guessing themselves. Uh, folks like that live in a, they're constantly in a state of second-guessing, uh, perpetual distrust of themselves or of God. Uh, for some people, the, their doubt is in themselves, and they wish they were somebody else. If you read Psalm 139, uh, David talks about how God put him together. And a lot of times, Listen, every guy in this room, you have strengths and you have weaknesses. Whatever strengths you have, God gave them to you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What have you been given that you did not receive? So when you take personality profiles or, you know, you take certain, uh, I hate to call them tests, but they'll give you certain instruments that help you understand. There's a thing out called strength finders. Finding your strength. Okay. Why? You have strengths. Okay, where'd you get the strengths? God gave them to you. So if you have strengths and you're able to do the art of the deal, don't go around banging your chest. Because if you have that ability, God gave you that ability, so give glory to God and do it in humility. Because the Lord gives and the Lord can't take away. You see? That is empty conceit and selfish ambition. All right, now. Uh, you have strengths, Okay. And if you have a certain kind of personality, you tend not to see your strengths, but what you see is you see your weaknesses. Oh, I'm not gifted here. I'm not gifted here. I'm not gifted here. I'm not gifted here. No, you're not. But get your eyes off where you haven't been gifted and get your eyes on what God has given you. He's given you some kind of strength. Utilize that strength. Try to work in that strength. You'll get joy in working in your gift and do it to the glory of God. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but is unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Well, I didn't do real well in school, Steve. I, I just, school, I just, well, I, I've got an, I've got a, I have a guy, and I'm going to couch this, that I know well. I've known him all my life because I'm related to him. <laughs> Distant. He never did well in school. He always struggled to read. He is the most financially successful guy in our entire family. Because when he was 14, 
He bought an old car and figured out, you know what, I could buy this part, and I could buy a fender, and I could buy this, and I could slap those suckers together. And that guy has built a business. I mean, we call him, most of us call him once a month trying to borrow money. <laughs> he's, he knows the Lord. He's a gracious guy. He's a humble guy. He's a giver. He loves Christ. Didn't do well in school at all. And, and, and struggled with that. But my gosh. See, he thinks he's not smart. He's brilliant. He's just brilliant in a different way. He can do anything with his hands. He can see it. He can just, he's a magician with sheet metal. It's unbelievable what this guy can do. You see? So instead of walking around all day and saying, I don't have this, I don't have this, I, what has God given you? Oh, I wish I could be like him. I wish I could be. God doesn't want you to be him. God wants you to be you. You see? And so you use the gifts that God has given you to God's glory. That's your calling in life. What a great privilege. Oh, by the way, if he's given you gifts, don't deny he's given you gifts. Use the gifts to his glory. And if you're a gift, if you're one of those guys that can make money and all that, good for you. Take care of your family. Do what Arthur Guinness did. You say, Arthur Guinness? Yeah. I'll get to Arthur Guinness in just a minute. Uh, okay, I could do more in humility, but I'm running out of time. I, I want to I deal with something else. In this passage in Philippians 2, so I hope you're getting the idea of humility. What is the essence of humility? The essence of humility is to love the Lord because of what he has done for you, and the essence of humility is not just to look out for your own needs, but also for the needs of others. You are to look out for the needs of your wife. The job of a husband is to take care. Uh, Ephesians 5. Um, I want to do 1 Peter 3.7, but I can't do 3.7. I want 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see that? He loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. He was a servant for the church. He's the husband to the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So your job is to get hurt for your wife. Your job is also to take care of your wife. Philip, um, 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. You take care of her. She's different than you are. Uh, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. She goes through a cycle every 28 days. You don't go through. All right, be aware of that. You take care of the situation. You take care of it. You're, you're aware of it. You don't get angry over it. You just, if, if she's having, you know, different than she is most of the time, you take that into consideration. You grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands take care. They don't take over. They don't take advantage. They don't take off. They take care. Okay. Now, earlier in Philippians, let's talk about ambition. Because uh, in Philippians 2, in talking about humility, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. Uh, ambition is a tough one in the, to me in the Christian life. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay. 
Let's talk about ambition for a minute, because once again, this is something where um, in the question and answer period last week, someone asked me about this, and I mentioned that to me, there are certain things in the Christian life that are sort of like mushrooms. Uh, and when I, when I say that, there's a type of mushroom that you can eat and enjoy and, you know, put on your steak and it's great. There's a type of mushroom that you put on your steak and uh, you may not live through the night. There are good mushrooms and there are bad mushrooms, are there not? Uh, in the Christian life, there are concepts that we are given that there's a good kind and there's a bad kind. Let, let, me, let me just give you a few. Um, and then we're going to, I'm going to work my way through this a little bit. Let's take the word success. There is a, what I call a credible, uh, I, I don't have a column here, but let me, let me paint a column invisibly for you. On, on one side, I would have a column that would say on the top, safe mushrooms. On the other side, I would have toxic mushrooms, okay? So under safe mushrooms, biblically speaking, there is a credible success. But across from that, there is a cultural success, which is toxic. I'll come back to this. Uh, another one would be, there is a suitable ambition, but there is also a selfish ambition in Scripture. Uh, there is decent pride, but there is also a deadly pride. Uh, there is a concept that we would call using money, but there is also a concept of loving money. Uh, I want to break some of these down a little bit. Let's talk about success for a minute. Uh, because we want to be successful, uh, as opposed to being a failure, right? So if we start a project, if we start something, we'd like to be successful in it. We'd all like to be, you know, when we're young, we all, if you go out for athletics, you want to be successful. Most of us will not be successful in athletics. Just if, if, if the standard of, is playing professional sports, 99% of the guys will not be successful, you see. Uh, so, um, you, you got to get your arms around success. Do I want to be a successful father? Do I want to be a successful husband? Uh, yeah. What do we mean by success? Um, well, there's a credible success. Uh, I, I, here's here's kind of how I define credible success. It is... Um, to me, a credible success is being faithful in what God has called me to do. It's real simple. It is simply being faithful in what God has called me to do. Uh, so if um, we want to be successful in our work, all right? So I want to be faithful in what God has called me to do. First of all, I would say this. If, if, as, as you can... In your work, choose something, if you can, in which you're gifted. Do you have an interest in it? Then, and even some guys, you say, Steve, you know, I'm retired now. Well, yeah. so what are you going to do, clip roses all day? I mean, you've got you to do something. Well, I want to be productive. All right, what are you good at? What do you like doing? All right, go, go find an area 
and where you're gifted. And then be faithful there. Be faithful in your work. Be faithful with your gift. Uh, when I, and I say when you be faithful, you don't cheat. You, you, don't, you don't take shortcuts. Because again, Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. I want to be faithful in my calling, okay? Um, I want him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So I want to be faithful. Um, I, 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 and, and, and you know, the eyes of the Lord on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Uh, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. Uh, you be faithful. God tends to honor faithful men. God tends to take care of faithful men. So just keep showing up at your post and be faithful and your father sees and your father knows. Okay, now I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating because I could take off on these and I can't because I want to work my way through them. That's a, to me a credible success, being faithful in your calling. What's cultural success? Cultural success is really fascinating. John Johnson came up with a definition of uh, cultural success that, to me, is, is brilliant. And um, I'm really hoping I can find it here because, give me a second. I. I found it. All right. John Johnson, I read this 35 years ago. Here's what he says. Um, Success is attaining cultural goals that are sure to elevate one's perceived importance within that culture. That's brilliant. Cultural success is attaining cultural goals that are sure to elevate one's perceived importance within that culture. In other words, if I achieve this, it's going to elevate, not my importance, but my perceived importance. You ever, you're in a hotel, you get in the elevator, and you hit floor two, and the guy next to you hits 38, and he has a key? Yeah. And so everybody in the elevator is thinking, how do you get that key? You see, there's perceived importance if you're on that floor and you got a key to unlock the elevator. Yeah, we have these little things. You got to have a credit card to travel. Well, you got green, you got gold, you got platinum, you got black, you got fuchsia. What do you have? Those different colors represent perceived importance, don't they? Okay. He goes on and says, in practical terms, cultural success means an elevation in power having commands obeyed and wishes granted. It means privilege, being given special rights or favors, or wealth, accumulating financial reserves and the accompanying security. Now, they're, they're, this is brilliant. In our, culturally, if you have an elevation in power, if you get a promotion, more people are going to obey your commands and your wishes are going to be granted. Okay? Uh, back when Lee Iacocca was famous, and when he was the guy that was, you know, the rock star of the business world, I read his biography, and he talked about as a young guy who went to work for Ford, everybody wanted to get an office on a certain floor, and guys would work their tails off 80, 90 hours a week 
And would you get, if you got promoted, you'd get on this certain floor. And yeah, there was some, there was some financial, you know, benefit and all that. But the thing that really set that off is that if you got on that floor, they would give you a key to an executive washroom. And guys were busting their tails in order to get a key to a toilet. <laughs> it was a really, really nice toilet. But it was a toilet. And he was making fun of it himself. But he, he was absolutely enamored with getting a key to that washroom. See, why? Because that elevates your perceived importance. You're not more important. Just people think you're more important. Uh, privilege, being given special rights or favors. We all like special rights. We all like favors. But you see, once again, it's kind of a sham. Because we're not called to get special rights and favors. As Christian men, we're called to humility, you see, to serve others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Nothing wrong with a perk or two when it comes. Just don't get used to it and don't love it. Uh, wealth. You got to be careful of money. Money is a trap and a snare and, and many a temptation that many have gone down over. It's 1 Timothy 6. Um, see, that's cultural success. Let me go back to uh, the next mushroom. So is there a right kind of success? Yeah. Is there a wrong kind? Yeah. Let's talk about ambition. There's a suitable ambition. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we already looked at it. We make it our ambition to please the Lord. See, if your ambition is to please the Lord, no matter what your context, no matter what you're doing, no matter what the activity, no matter what the work, if your ambition is to please the Lord, you're going to be good. You're going to be fine. Uh, because you want to please Him. I try to pray, I, pray, I try to ask each day two things of the Lord. I, I try to remember to pray, let not the foot of pride come upon me. Just don't let me get proud. Don't let me get arrogant. Don't let me get stupid, Lord. And then the second thing I try to pray is, do not let me wander from thy commandments. Don't let me do it. You keep me in check. Um, because I want to please you. If I get proud, I'm not pleasing you. If I wander from your commandments, I'm not pleasing you. So that's a suitable ambition. You see, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to, I want to be faithful in my responsibilities. All right, now, let's go to selfish ambition. What's selfish ambition? We looked at James 1 last week. Selfish ambition, according to James is earthly and demonic. It's what Satan did in heaven when he rebelled against Almighty God. Uh, let's, let's actually go to, to that passage in, in James real quick. And I'm watching the clock. James 3, verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition... In your heart, don't be so arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom that this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Why is this disorder? Because if you have selfish ambition, you're out for yourself. And your family, you're out for yourself. If you have selfish ambition and you're a Christian guy in your small group, you're going to be out for yourself and there's going to be disorder. 
Uh, there's going to be a split in your church if you've got a bunch of people in your church with selfish ambition on your board. Oh, this is my agenda. This is my agenda. They won't come out and say it, but they got an agenda, and it's selfish ambition. That's how you split a church. You see? Uh, in that Q&A last week, someone asked me, uh, you talked, Steve, you talked about selfish ambition. Could you give us a personal example in your life when you've dealt with selfish ambition? And I couldn't think of one, but I, but I, I said, I don't, I'm not sure I really dealt with this, but I, know, I think most guys in this room have. It, it, was, it was a joke. It was meant to be humorous. You didn't get it. Um, when he asked me, when have you ever dealt with selfish ambition? I went back to my early 30s in my first church. Because, you see, selfish ambition is, uh, as Bill Lawrence used to call it, it's the need to lead. It's the need to be first. In 3 John 9, Paul, uh, John said, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. John was an apostle. Diotrephes was a leader in the church, but he loved to be first. See, selfish ambition. I, I was a young pastor, and, and quite frankly, I, did, did I want to build a church? Yeah, for God's glory. Yeah, and, and honestly, for mine too. For mine too. Did I want to grow that church? Yeah, because if I grew that church, I'd be well known. See, not only did I have the need to lead, I had the need for the limelight. I had a need for applause. I had a need for adulation. In my heart of hearts, see, I'm a young guy. I took that church when I was 27 or 28. You know who my hero was when I was 27 or 28? There was this guy in Southern California, Chuck Swindoll. And I listened to him on the radio, and I read his books. And... I never told anybody this, but in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be the Chuck Swindoll of Northern California. Now, that was stupid. Because, uh, <laughs> do I love Chuck? Did I love Chuck? Yeah. Do I, do I admire him? Absolutely. Do I wish I had his gifts? I sure do. I don't. Uh, he may, do I have his energy? No. He can still outwork me. Ticks me off. <laughs> but I, I'm 28, I'm 29, and you know what? He was a hero to me. Still is. I wish I could be like him. And I want to be like him here. Well, you know what? I didn't know the process God had to take Chuck through. How painful it was. There's a cost to being used. I was young. I was stupid. I didn't know that cost. I was about to find out. And when I was at my worst and I was absolutely depressed, who was it that helped me that I listened to every morning when, before anybody got up? I'd lay on that floor prone and I'd listen to Chuck. And every, every morning he helped me on the radio. He helped me get me through that time because he had been there, you see. See, I wanted to be well-known. I wanted my ministry to expand. I wanted all this. I, I couldn't handle that. I heard Chuck say one time, before God will ever work through you, he will first work in you. Why? Because young guys with selfish ambition need surgery. <laughs> 
and we're all still dealing with selfish ambition, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We all are. See, we all, you know, in our culture, I did a conference this week in somewhere. Where was I? I was one of the, uh, one of the 50 states. I was in Ohio. Um, and at a certain point, one of the younger pastors got up. Nice, nice guy. Sharp, great heart. And, and uh, you know, he said something, and I, I got it. I knew what he was trying to say. And, and he said in, in his statements, and he says, you know, I believe God wants to use all of us in a great way. I don't think that's true. Not great in a Billy Graham way. Not great in a Chuck Swindoll way. Not great in a, you know, Robbie Zacharias way. I, I, what I'm saying is, God will use us. But see, God uses us in different ways. Most of us will not have that kind of um, platform. We won't have that kind of visibility. We won't have, but see, in, in, it's just in our culture. Well, that's what you want. That's it. That's, that's when you got it. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, what, what I see uh, in Thessalonians, there's a verse that says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to work with your hands. In other words, what do you do? Most guys live normal lives. I, you know what, what I love? The, before the Lord Jesus had his public ministry, he lived in the same little town. He worked in the same little shop, doing the same trade every day. He was a carpenter, dealing with people in a little town, Every day, da da da. He honored normal work by his life. He sanctified normal work. That's what most of us are called to. But see, we get conned by these temptations. Do, do I want to provide for my family and be successful? Sure, I do. Um, sure, I do. I, I'm not dealing with all of these. Um, I'm not dealing with all of these mushrooms. Once again, I'm out of time. You know, I want to say two things. I want to talk about Arthur Guinness, and then I want to talk about playing basketball in our backyard. Can you guys remind me that's what I'm supposed to do before I close? All right, let me talk about Arthur Guinness. Uh, back in... One of the wildest books I've ever read was called God and Guinness, uh, written by Stephen Mansfield. Uh, Arthur Guinness was a committed Christian. He came to know, why am I missing page one? Uh, he was a committed Christian. He, uh, he lived in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, he was a brewer. And one of the reasons people drank beer back then was that beer contained alcohol. And you see, contextually, you've got to understand something. You say, oh, I'm a complete teetotaler. No, you're not. You drink alcohol. You ever take NyQuil when you're sick? Okay? You use alcohol. They drank beer because beer contained alcohol, and the water was horrific. They had no hygiene back then. 
the, the upstream, they would dump the sewer, and that water would come downstream, and people would drink it, and people would get sick. He lived in Dublin, Ireland in the 1700s. He received an inheritance. So he, they had a little family brewery. He asked the Lord, he said, Lord, uh, he, he had heard John Wesley had come to know the Lord. He wanted to be used by God. And he prayed and he asked the Lord, what do I do with this money? How can I be used for the kingdom? And he really felt in his heart that the Lord wanted him to buy and start his own brewery. Some evangelical Christians would have problems with that today. But when you look at the context, the, the water was so bad in Ireland. The drunkenness was so bad in Ireland. One out of every six homes was a gin joint. People's lives were so wretched and their lives were so bad. And the, the, leave, the level of disease, the level of child abuse, of wife abuse, of drunkenness, uh, an, easy, an easy way out was just to drink gin. And it was devastating the city. He found a small brewery that was going out of business that wasn't being used. He negotiated a lease with the guy for some reason for 9,000 years at a certain rate. There's a story there, and I don't know what the story is. And then he asked the Lord to use him. And one of the things he wanted to do was to brew a beverage that could actually help people. Uh, Guinness. It was loaded with B vitamins. It had alcohol to fight the disease. It, and he built a company, and if you ever read the story of Arthur Guinness, um, there are three strains of that family. There are the brewers, there are the bankers, and there are the pastors and missionaries. Os Guinness is a direct descendant. And God has used that family over the years. But what he did was he asked God to let him start a business that not only where he could use his gifts and his skills and his training, but that he could help others in the city who were in terrible shape. At, at a certain point in the 20s, to sh and I hope I brought this I, I hope I brought this. Yeah. His, his message with his company, here, here was his model. He got it from John Wesley. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Guinness said, your wealth is evidence of a calling from God, so use your abundance for the good of mankind. Uh, the Guinness family kept that up. The Guinnesses decided that they could better society by bettering the lives of their employees. They started by paying better wages than any other employer in Ireland. Then they decided they should provide an entire slate of services to improve the lives of their workers. Dublin, Ireland was called the Calcutta, India of the British Empire. With the passing of decades, they became one of the most generous, life-changing employers that the world has ever known. All because a man had humility. Okay? Now, he didn't start out to be the famous, he just started out to help folks in his community and earn a living. Okay. Basketball. Okay. And I'm done with this. All right. So, we had dinner. My kids are probably, Rachel's probably 10. John's, let's see, let me do the math. He's about eight. Josh is about five. We're having dinner. Just a normal night. It's in the summer, it's daylight saving times. It's, it's a lot of daylight when we're done with dinner. So, you know, Josh said, hey, Dad, let's go shoot baskets. So we have a basket. So we go in the backyard, we start shooting baskets. And then John came out. And 
so they wanted to play, and so I'd play against them. You know, we'd play. I'd, anyway, we were just shooting baskets, and we're having a good time. And Josh was five. He'd pick up the basketball, run for a touchdown. You know, <laughs> when you're five, you can do that. No big deal. And John would get upset, and he's running for a touchdown, Dad. I said, I know. And then Rachel came out, and then she won the play, and that really irritated the boys because she could hit that outside shot. Anyway, <laughs> we're just playing, having it. And then Mary came. Oh, we're just playing ball. No big deal. It was just normal. We had a, I was pastoring. Uh, you know, things were going so-so at the church. Not great. Uh, was the church really growing? No, not really. In fact, it was kind of plateaued. Uh, I had a couple guys on the board that were really on my tail. Um, I don't think they were Christians. Uh, no, that, and we maybe we'll edit that. Yeah, they were good guys. But, you know, we were just kind of, it was just normal life. Just normal life. You know, the family room needed carpet. Um, the, the deck needed to be replaced. It's just normal life. We're just shooting baskets. Anyway, I'm just playing with the kids. Mary comes out. She'd been on the phone with her mom. She comes out. And then she starts playing. We're all shooting bad. We're just horsing around, having fun. And then the ball went off John's foot and went under the deck. And so he went under the deck to get it. And our dog, Sugar, went with him. And Sugar's licking his face. And I'm just standing there waiting for John to get the ball. And all of a sudden, it was like I saw that in freeze frame. You know what I'm talking about? Back then, I had a VCR. I had a camera, and I had a VCR that weighed about 140 pounds on a portable pack that's permanently ruined my shoulder. But that was the high tech back then. But when you were shooting a thing, you could hit pause. You can still hit pause. And suddenly, as I'm waiting for John, he's under the deck. It was like I saw that in freeze frame. I see John under the deck. I see Sugar licking his face. I see Mary over there, and Rachel's got her arms around Mary and just hugging her. I see Josh over here, and he's staring up in the sky with his mouth hanging open. I have no idea what he was doing, but he was just. And it was like that all froze. And I just looked at it. And I thought to myself, you know, Steve, it doesn't get any better than this. This is as good as it gets. Could we use some more money? Yeah. Could we use carpet in the family room? Yeah. Could I use a little more growth at the church? Yeah. Could I? But you know what? It doesn't get any better than this. These are the good old days. And what hit me later is, you know, how many years down the road? Mary and I are going to be sent in some assisted living. You know, and I got drool coming down this cheek. And we're going to be sitting in a chair, and we're going to be thinking back and all that. And, and you know what? I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember that night. And we'll be saying to ourselves, you know, those were the good old days. Why don't I enjoy those now? Just now. And that little sphere, that little family that God has given me, I'm called to take care of that. Oh, can I hear something else? Because I'm called to take care of them at this stage in my life. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to steward, I'm trying to steward my energy so I can be around to continue to serve them. So I begin the mornings with the scripture to keep my well full. I don't travel as much as I used to. Because if I travel, it throws me off. I get 
I don't have the energy. I try to swim. I try to keep my weight. I'm just trying to steward my energy. Why? Because it's just not for me. It's for them because I'm called to serve. You see what I'm saying? I don't want to get out of balance. It's a daily grind. It's a daily struggle. But you see, to me, that's living a life of humility in order to do the work that he's called me to do. And I really don't care to be famous, but what would be great is that when I stand before the Lord, and I can't prove this, but maybe Mary and I will stand together, is that Jesus would look at us and he'd say, Steve, Mary, thumbs up, well done. That's a compliment that'll carry you through eternity. Let's pray. So Lord, don't let us drink the Kool-Aid of our culture. Don't let us get crazy on ambition or this other stuff. We gotta have money, we gotta take care of our families. Is there a decent pride that comes when we do a job and we do it well? Yeah. Is there a decent pride when we see character developing in our kids and they make a good character decision? Yeah, there's a decent pride there. That's so different than the pride of the world. Lord, uh, continue to mature us. Continue to keep us in the process. Continue to teach us. But if we forget everything else when we walk out of here, may we remember as we walk out that you've called us to be servants. And it is you whom we serve. We want to please you. And if we please you, you're going to take care of everything else. In your name we pray. Amen.